Like I said, I'm, I'm super stoked to talk about what we're talking about today because it's central to everything that I ever, uh, ever preach to you in any other message. If we miss this piece, the other stuff's not going to happen. Today we're going to talk about humility. Some of you are like, oh, good, humility. I'm great at that. Maybe you don't understand. Maybe you're uh, a little unclear. But uh, as I was thinking about humility this week and studying this passage, I was like, man, this is so central to the Christ life. Like, you you never meet Jesus except that you humble yourself, realize your need, and trust him as your savior. And then as you follow Jesus, you can't, like we just sang about, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Trust takes humility. Trust says, here's the wheel. I'm going to let you steer. I'm going to let you lead. I'm going to follow you. And if you can't humble yourself to the point where you give up control, then you can't trust. You certainly can't obey. Right? Like you go to the front of our book and basically, yeah, they, they took a, a fruit from a tree that had been forbidden them. But, but essentially what happened is, is our, our adversary, Satan, convinced the first man and woman that, that they needed to increase. That there needed to be more in this world about them. And they needed to somehow, apart from God, um, get bigger in this life. That's, that's what led to sin was arrogance and pride and self-seeking. I mean, we, we could just preach the whole morning on that. Humility is at the middle of this Christ life that you and I live. And if you're someone who isn't following Jesus yet, I'm gonna, what I'm talking about is step one in you realizing your need for your Savior. So we talk about humility. Let me dispel some of the wrong ideas that people have. It. Some people take humility too far, and they actually think, you know, like humility is self-loathing. Like self-flagellate, like I stink and everybody, oh, everybody hates me. And, you know, it's Eeyore from the Winnie the Pooh, right? That's too far. That's not humility. In fact, that is contra uh, what we believe theologically. We know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are created in the image of God himself, that you may not look like the people you wish you looked like. You may not have the talents that you wish you had, but whatever you are, you are created in God's image. And that's not nothing. Mom would be mad. That's a bad English sentence. So it's not going too far with humility and, and, and having low self-esteem, but my experience is that that's usually not the human problem. Humans usually don't go far enough with humility. In fact, when they do show humility, a lot of times there's a lot of them in their humility. Like there's a lot of, of meanness in their humility. Their humility, in other words, is totally false. False modesty, ever heard of that? You know, you're like, uh, no, stop applauding, but under here you're like, yeah, come on. Yeah, people are like that. You can kind of see it, you know, if you go places where humility is kind of the, the required ingredient, you can kind of see people like, like uh, uh, outside this world, you know, I, I get to be at you know, certain things, openings of businesses, ribbon cuttings at non-profs and stuff like that. It's always interesting to me, the people who like crowd in for the picture. Yeah, I'm a part of this great service venture, but make sure I'm in the paper. They, they want their names on the buildings when they give donations. They want people to know it was me. That was so good to give. They uh, 
can even volunteer for certain things, not so that they can actually serve, but so that they can be served and put things on their resume and get the shine for themselves. We're really good at turning the attention towards ourselves. The Bible, uh, over and over again, in lots of places, but probably most clearly, uh, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Anybody remember that one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and then love others as you love yourself. It gives us our priority list. And, and here's the deal, just so you know, as you wake up every morning, I hope you say these words out loud. Seriously, say this tomorrow morning, Rusty. I'm third, that's, that's the first thing you do. Bronze medalist, every day of my life, I'm third. Who's first? Love the Lord your God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Who's first? God's first. Then others. And then me. If you're, if you're understanding what the scriptures teach us, we are all about living the all for you life. All for you being all for God. Everything stems from him and returns to him if we're doing this right. But a close second to that, well actually it's not a really close second. Way behind God is what I meant to say but certainly a priority over ourselves are the people that God has made around us. Listen to me, even the ones you disagree with. Oh, now we're messing, right? I gotta love Democrats. I gotta love Republicans. I gotta love people who grew up different than me. How about this one? I gotta love people who worship God different than me. Yeah, you do. Because they're all included in that heading, others. Enemies, friends, brothers, sisters. Uh, when, when it comes to humility, we, we humble ourselves first to our God, but then we seek to humble ourselves to others. We prefer them above ourselves. We don't see ourselves as less important than them. That's that self-loathing, low self-esteem stuff. But we never allow ourselves to see ourselves as more important than anybody. We live the all for you life when it comes to God, but we live the after you life when it comes to each other. We're door holders, servants of our fellow man. Now, third in that list is me, you. Take care of you. Bring your best you to the, the life that you live. But don't bring it so that you might have the shine. You might have the benefit. You might succeed and move forward. Bring it so that as you succeed, as things come to you, you can honor God and bring him the glory that he's due and then love others with what God has entrusted you in life with. But that's, that's this. That's us. Say it one more time with me. Everybody wake up in the morning and say it tomorrow. I'm third. Ready? One, two, three. I'm third. Here's something else I've learned about humility as I've studied it this week. Um, we can either choose it or it can be chosen for us. But somewhere in the process, we will be humbled. Is everybody with me on that? Who's experienced that in your life? You can either choose it or it can be chosen for you. You can either seek the win-win or you can become the loser. But humility comes for us all. I was watching Netflix with Eleanor this week. We watched a couple shows. The first one was the last blockbuster. 
The Last Blockbuster is a show about the last blockbuster. Good title. Uh, the last blockbuster in all of existence is still open in Bend, Oregon. You can go and rent a movie. Who, who's from that era? Some people are looking at me, you're younger, and you're like, what? You rented movies? At like a store? Yeah. Like a lot. Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and the last one, get this. The, the, the documentary told us nine, at one time, 9,000 stores around the world operated by Blockbuster. They were one of the biggest companies traded on the stock market. But, and I found this so ironic, the show was on Netflix. <laughs> because of companies like Netflix and because of the downturn in the economy in 2008 and all the money that they owed and lots of other poor decisions that they made that the documentary outlined, Blockbuster has gone from 9,000 stores to one store because they failed to humble themselves and pivot where other companies did and now they don't exist anymore except for one store in Bend, Oregon. Yeah, you're gonna be humbled. How much better is it then for us to humble ourselves before the greater humbling and see if we can't work things out for a win-win? Anybody in favor of that? We watched another show this week. You're gonna think all we do is Netflix. We do other things. Uh, but Eleanor taped this show, I think it was on the History Channel, uh, taped is an old word, DVR'd. Anyway, uh, we, we watched this show called, called The Food That Made America. I'm in, just on the title alone, right? I'm in. Let's go. Let's do this. And in this particular episode of The Food That Made America, they detailed the story of the Frito-Lay Company. The Frito-Lay Company uh, basically became its known entity that we have now in the 50s, but it started out as the Frito Company and the Lay's Potato Chip Company. This guy named uh, C.E. Dillon uh, was living in uh, uh, San Antonio, went into a store, uh, tasted this, this proprietor's corn chips that he had made from his mother's recipe out of masa and said, that's delicious. How'd you make them? Well, the process was way too long. He couldn't scale it to where he could produce this and provide this, you know, as a company. But he figured out uh, that if he had this machine that I can't remember the name of, he could actually, you know, create a process that would produce what we know today to be corn chips, Fritos, right? And that's what he did. And, and they'd sold like hotcakes. Anyway, uh, at the same time, a guy named Herman Lay is living in Georgia, and other people had been frying chips for years, but he perfected the way to, to package them, and, and he created all the routes. And so at the same time, roughly, Frito in the southwest and south, and, and Lay's in the east became these huge snack companies. Now, World War II was looming. And both of their companies were under threat because, as we have experienced in our last year, only the essentials would continue to operate during World War II. And certain food companies would just kind of be shut down because of the rationing that would occur and because of all the emphasis that would be given to feeding our boys who are on the front line. Well, both CEOs contacted the American government and said, hey, our food is perfect, you know, for box lunches and for, you know, it, it, you don't need refrigeration, the, the, the bags seal, and, and, and these things will keep for days and days and days, and both of them won government contracts. And so in an age where other companies like them were just folding Fritos and Lay's just continued to grow in their market share until World War II ends. And now they're number one and two in the snack market. Here's where it gets good. Herman tries Fritos one day and he loves them. And he's like, oh no, these guys are going to bury me. And so he calls up 
C.E. Dillon, and he says, hey, can we meet? And in the documentary, it shows them getting together in the Frito company office, and, and, and Dillon's all set to, like, you know, have a war. He thinks Lay's uh, is coming to, to basically try to buy him out or to threaten him, or, but there's a completely different message. Herman sits down, and he says, I love Fritos. <laughs> Do you think there's some way that we could take everything I'm doing? At this point, they're both regional companies, South and Southwest and East Coast. What if we did this? What if everywhere you sell Fritos, you sold Lay's potato chips? And what if everywhere I sold Lay's potato chips, I started selling Fritos? What if we took what is working for both of us as the number one in two companies in snacks in the country and became one big company? And that's what they did. And now you and I eat Frito-Lay's. I was told by a guy who's in the, in the industry that it's 57% of snack foods that Frito-Lay's makes now that are sold in the United States. It's a $4 billion company. If you eat chips, they're probably made by the guys who started C.E. Dillon and Herman Lay. It's their company. Humility brought greater success. And in our lives with Jesus, humility is what we're called to do. And that's why a couple weeks ago, a young guy named Richard Toussaint got up here from the chapel and preached a message and said, hey, y'all who go to this church, you want to join me at that church? And people came up to me and said, that was really brave to tell, you know, let someone get up and ask your people to go to his church. And I was like, gah, 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 gah. <laughs> you are not my people. I haven't put a brand on any one of you guys signifying that you are mine. We are God's people. And that's not Richard's church. This isn't Mark's church. This isn't your church. This is God's church. And if God wants to move some pieces around and move the gospel message forward in different parts of our community through different people in different places at different times, I'm fine with that. I think that's what we're meant to be about. First thing that you ask when you go to a pastor's conference, everybody's trying to dance around it, but everybody wants to know, how many? How many you got over there at that Bay Life church of yours? Again, it's not mine, it's God's church. That's why when you hear me talk about our church, I try to say God's church called Bay Life. But this, the thing, I've told you this before, the thing that whenever they say it, because it's like dogs sniffing each other, how many you got, right? What basically is happening is they want to know where they are in the pecking order, and I never give them the satisfaction. I always say to them when they ask me, how many people go to Bay Life, what do I say? Not enough! And that's the only answer at every church that is in existence to serve Jesus Christ. Because it's not about winning in terms of comparison to other places. It's about Jesus being lifted high in the hearts of men. Oh, don't get me preaching. Here we go. This is what the book of John tells us as we talk about humility today. These are humble beginnings. If you're going to be humble, you got to at least have these things. These are the humble beginnings of humility in life. Verse 22 says this, after Jesus and his disciples uh, or after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So if you're here a couple of, like the last couple of weeks, Jesus has been talking with Nicodemus. 
They've had this great conversation about being born again. He, he uh, you know, the, that famous verse that's in the end zone of every football game, for God so loved the world, right? That, that's all in that conversation uh, with Nicodemus. And so after this conversation with this uh, Pharisee, he basically uh, leaves with his friends and he heads out into the Judean countryside. Uh, and he remained there with them. And, and get this, he was, what's it say? Baptizing. Hang on. Isn't there a guy that does that already? Yeah, I think his name is John the Baptist. Yeah, that, that's his gig. But no, Jesus is like, you know, pulling up on his corner and posting up right there. And he's starting to baptize himself, uh, those who are following him, in preparation for the covenant that he has been sent to earth to bring them. Uh, it goes on and it says, verse 23, that John was also baptizing. He was baptizing in this uh, region a little farther north. Here we go. Uh, Mediterranean Sea, you got Jerusalem down here. This is the Dead Sea. This is the Jordan River. If you were going to be dunking people in Israel, you went to the Jordan River. That's where the water was. And so just a little bit farther north upriver is this place called Anon near uh, Salim. Uh, and John baptized there. Why? Super practical. The water's deep enough. There's plenty of water. And people were coming and being baptized there for John. Spoiler alert. John had not yet been put in prison. It's not going to end well for John, just so we're all clear, if you're kind of new to the Bible. Um, he's going to be beheaded by the, the king of the region, a Jew named Herod. But read Mark chapter 6. It's all in there. Now, John's baptizing where he is, and Jesus is baptizing where he is. And uh, John, the writer of the gospel, uh, sees fit to include this. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a, an unnamed Jewish guy uh, over purification. Uh, Jews used water uh, primarily in the Jewish faith to ceremonially, ceremonially cleanse themselves in preparation for sacrifice or some other Jewish rite. In fact, if you remember the wedding story, the wedding of Cana and Galilee in chapter 2, there were six jars that were all ceremonially, uh, you know, chartered uh, jars that Jesus said, fill that up with water and he turned it into wine. Who remembers that story? Okay. That, those jars were used for these ceremonial cleansings, which was the most common use of water in the Jewish religion. But did you know there was another use? If you wanted to become a Jew and you were a Gentile, guess what you had to get done? You got to get dunked. It was a, a threshold, a, a sign of transformation. You're dying to your old gods and you're being cleansed uh, by that belief and brought into a new life with the God of Israel. So here comes John and now Jesus, and they're baptizing in water, but it's not so that you can go make sacrifices at the temple. It's not so that Gentiles can become followers of Judaism. It's so that Jews, who are already Jewish, can start going in this direction of what Jesus is preaching and what John has prepared uh, for those who, uh, who have been baptized in, uh, by him. So there are, there's all these constant questions. Who works at a job where people ask you constant questions? Okay, I know you do. Uh, isn't that frustrating sometimes? Do you feel like you're just saying the same things every day over and over again? I bet you that's how John's disciples are feeling. Every time someone comes up to them, it's like, What's, what are you guys doing in the river? Why are you dunking everybody? Oh, you know, it's because, you know, our, our rabbi thinks he's the, the, the one the prophet spoke of, the one who was, you know, cry out in the wilderness and prepare the way of the Lord, uh, and, and we're in that. And, and, and so they must have come home at night and just been, ah, oh. six times I had to explain to somebody why we're doing what we're doing. Just complaining. Who does that when they come home from work? Anybody? Hey, honey, how was your day? Oh, if I have to one more time, blah, 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 right? We don't do that. Anyway, 
They're probably doing something like that with uh, John the Baptist when we get to verse 26. On top of that, as they're uh, talking about all the questions that people have, they, they said, and another thing, Rabbi, uh, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, who are they referring to? Jesus, right? Look, behold, the word is there. Check it out. He's baptizing just like us. He's horning in on our business. And get this, people are going to him instead of us. This cannot be. You gotta do something, John. Get on Twitter. You know, th throw some shade his direction. We're losing, you know, people. This is our whole deal. <laughs> John's going to respond to them with these humble beginnings. I'm going to give them four things. The first thing he's going to tell them is, is something that we need to be reminded of daily. Uh, listen, guys, you've got to remember to see God as the giver of all things. Look what John says. He says, hey, guys, appreciate your concerns, but, but here's how we look at this. This is the correct perspective Whatever's going on in our lives, if, if someone's succeeding where we're not, if more people are following them than us, um, we have to believe, assume, uh, that in great part that's happening because God has willed it to be so. Because, as he puts it this way, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He, he, uh, he, he, he basically provides a proverb. He's not quoting a proverb that I know of from the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, but he's basically saying, here's a wise saying. If you've got it, God gave it. And if you're supposed to have it, God will give it. And, and we're all about his will, his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We're all about being satisfied what he gives us. Now, this isn't an excuse for just kind of us to unplug and just, you know, uh, uh, sit here and do nothing. Certainly, we're going to strive and we're going to continue to be earnest and honest and, and, and about his work. But if our work decreases and someone else's increases, we don't impugn that successful ministry. We don't complain about the work of God happening somewhere else. We rejoice that God is working through them even as we continue to be faithful in what he's given us. That sounds really different than what I've learned in the culture I've grown up in. When at all costs, be the best. Strive. And when you don't have it, complain that the other guys do. How come he's got the truck that I deserve? How come their church is more popular. I get that from all the time. So, if you, do you hear about so, such and such church? How come our church doesn't do that? Well, because God hasn't called us to do that. Well, that, their church is cooler. What? Cooler? Is that a thing? Are we, are we trying to be cool? I was trying to be like Christ. I mean, that's a thing. Let's do that. If we happen to be cool, awesome. You know? If, if you like our style of doing things, if, if, if you're into the way things kind of happen here, awesome. But it's not, we're not about the things, the vibe, the feel. We're about the Jesus and him being honored and served. At least we should be. Hmm. 
A lot of this kind of thinking in, in the scriptures as you move forward, Paul writes about it a ton. In 1 Corinthians, he's, he's writing to a church that's completely absorbed with itself and lots of wrong ways. And, and in chapter 4 of, of, of the first letter he writes to Corinth, he says, what are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given you? Answer, nothing. And if all you have is from God, then why act as though you are so great and as though you have accomplished something on your own? He, he writes it this way when he writes the Galatians. He says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And read there, he's headed for trouble. He goes on, he, he's writing to uh, his friends in Philippi. And he's in the first chapter of that letter. Uh, he's, he's super excited about all the opportunities he's having as an imprisoned man. He's, he's, I get to be strapped to guards who have to listen to me preach the gospel. It's so great. People are, you know, uh, trusting Jesus in the jail and, and, the, and the people outside of here who are in the church are, you know, they're, they're, they're being uh, buoyed in their faith. It's just a great thing. But then he gets to these verses and he says in, in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy, but others from goodwill. He, he brings up this kind of troubling thing. He says, you know what? Some people see me here in prison and, and they're being inspired by what's happening as God's working and, 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 and they go out and they preach from goodwill. They, they, they speak of me in, in kind ways. But others, as they preach in their churches, they preach and they impugn me. They basically say that I'm in jail because I did something wrong. They, they uh, besmirch my character. And, and we read this and we understand that it's basically so that they can get a leg up on the Apostle Paul and, and look better than him, maybe gain some more followers. He, he says in verse 16, the latter, those who do it you know, uh, from goodwill, they, they do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. They got the story straight. But the others, the former, they, they, they do it uh, and they proclaim Christ out of, the, out of their own selfish ambition. No humility. They do it without sincerity. There's an angle. And, and they do it uh, to, to afflict me with punishment. They're seeking to drag me down. I'm so glad that doesn't happen in this day and age. That no, ever, no one ever goes on you know, social media and fires off a reaction post to something that they've loosely read from the mail or from their email and, and you know, just goes to town on some spiritual leader or some you know, political leader or some other person that they're supposed to be after ewing in life. I'm so glad that we live in an age where that does not occur. Is everybody picking up my sarcasm? I think I'm laying it down pretty thick. Is everybody picking that up? Paul says this next thing that is so like, what? He actually starts that way. He says, verse 18. So I got these people who are, you know, not slamming on me, and I got these people who are slamming on me, but both groups are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What then, verse 18? Only this, that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's all chew on that this week. What'd Paul just say? Hey, man, even if people preach Jesus with wrong motives. And even if in their um, pursuit of Christ, um, that they kind of end up in wrong places on some of the, the, the lesser pieces of our theology. Even if they do things, you know, with hearts that aren't truly set towards Jesus. And again, so grateful that that doesn't happen anymore in churches, right? That every pastor who gets up in a box preaches, you know, with Christ at the center of his soul. And he's not about, you know, a bigger car and a, and a bigger house. And, you know, uh, it's more sarcasm if you're losing me there. But uh, 
Paul says, hey, man, my, my hope, my desire is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and that people hear the message and respond. Everybody gets that we're going to be in line in heaven with lots of people. We're going to be like, really? They made it. I blogged about them. There's no way they're in. They, they, they sang the wrong songs. They, they, did, they did church the wrong way. There was too many lights. There weren't enough lights. It was three-piece suits. They should have worn shorts. You know, there's, there's all these things that were like, they got in? How'd they get in? Well, because they believed the same gospel that you and I have put our faith in. And that's the differentiator. differentiator. It's not how they look. It, even some of the ways that they went about their business. Oh, this is meddling. So the question that I come to a lot of times is when I look at you know, other things that are going on and, and I get focused on this plane as opposed to this one, um, do I rail against those who I disagree with or do I rally for them because they've agreed with me in the essentials? And the answer is, just for everybody ready? Yes. Some of you are like, well, I thought I was just going to do the rally thing. No. Where there's falsehoods and where there's things to correct, we talk about them in love and we share them and say, listen, I disagree with you on this and I think you need to change on this. But we don't let those differences keep us from rejoicing like Paul did when the message goes forward. All right, enough on that. Everybody pick up the first humble beginning. If we're going to be humble, we've got to see that God is the giver of all things. The second thing that John's going to tell his disciples is stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. He says this in verse 28. You yourselves bear, uh, bear me witness that I have said to you all along, I am not the Christ. He's had this conversation in chapter 1. A bunch of guys from, the, from Jerusalem, a, a, a contingency, a, 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 an entourage from the, from the spiritual leaders there came and said, John, are you Jesus? Are you, well, he didn't say Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus. But are you the Messiah? He's like, no. Are you a prophet? No. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. I got my lane. I'm staying in it. And so, guys, don't get all fussed out that Jesus is upriver baptizing people. That's supposed to happen. He's the Messiah, not me. Everybody gets that, right? Jesus is the Messiah, not me, not you, not anybody else. It's him. And our whole life is stay in my lane, point people to Jesus. Stay in my lane, point people to Jesus. Know who I am. Function in what Jesus has given me to function in. Honor him with what he's entrusted me to honor him with. Anybody, anybody a fan of sports? Anybody watch any team sports, basketball, football, soccer, anything like that? Six of us. Okay, so uh, in team sports, players on teams have assignments. And if they miss their assignments, then the team's going to lose. If a football player on a defensive uh, you know, squad decides, you know what, I'm not going to guard this guy on this pattern where he's going to run out there and catch a pass. Instead, I'm going to go try to sack the quarterback. That gets all the glory. Everybody loves sacks. And so I'm going to run in there and get the quarterback. Before he can even get close to the quarterback, the quarterback notices that he's coming because he's Tom Brady, the best quarterback that's ever lived, and he just flips the ball without even you know, having to look. He's just like, awesome. Thanks for blitzing me. Touchdown. And how does this happen? How do teams lose? People miss assignments. They aren't where they're supposed to be, whether they meant to be or not. 
They've thought too highly of themselves. Look what it says in Romans 12, verse 3. We know verses 1 and 2, that's the stuff about not being conformed anymore to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We love those. Does anybody memorize verse 3? Here it is. For by the grace given to me, Paul says to the Romans, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but to think instead with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned you. You know, there's a, a Greek verse that basically contains the same Greek word four different times, the Greek word phronane. Everybody say phronane. It means to think. And there's two uh, specific versions of this Greek word phronane that we need to bring out. It's the two imperatives. He says, do not think more highly of yourself. That's the Greek word, compound word, hyperphronane. You know what it basically means? Don't overthink yourself. Don't think outside of yourself. Assess yourself honestly is what the next word means, sophronane. Soph is the word that we use for like philosophy or sophist. A wise person is, is, is a sophist. And so don't think unwise thoughts or, you know, above yourself thoughts. Stay within yourself and think wise thoughts about yourself. This is the key to the Christ life. Stay in your lane. He goes on and he says, serve the bridegroom. If you're going to be humble in life, you got to know that God's the giver of all good things. Everything in life I have, it's because he's chosen. And I'm not going to be angry at anybody else because they have it and I don't. The second thing is I'm going to trust God that he has made me how he wants me, where he wants me. I'm going to serve him where I am, staying in my lane. The third thing is, is I'm going to dedicate my life to serving the bridegroom. Look what it says. He goes to a metaphor. He says, verse 21, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Everybody say, duh. Yeah, that's how weddings work. The bride and the groom get married. He's, a, he's pulling, by the way, from a metaphor that's used of God in the Old Testament. Look what it says in Isaiah 54, verse 5. As the prophet speaks to Israel there, he says, for your maker is your what? Is your husband. The, the, the marriage feast we sang about before I got up here and preached. Um, uh, preached. Started preaching. Anyway. That's something that's in the future, but this metaphor of God being the husband and his people being the bride, that's been going on since the Old Testament. Uh, as John makes mention of Jesus in this way, and as he refers to himself, as we're going to see, as the friend of the bridegroom, he's basically saying, Jesus is with God. In fact, Jesus is God. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, John says, that's me. Now, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John says, it's me. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. The, the Hebrew word for that friend is the shosh ben. Uh, the shosh ben, the shosh, shosh ben uh, at, the, at the Hebrew wedding had lots of responsibilities. Guys, you can all be grateful that we aren't Jewish in you know, the first century. Because most weddings relied on us. We would be the, the go-between. The friend of the bridegroom would be the go-between between the bride and the bridegroom. Uh, we would be in charge of the ceremony. So we were the caterer, the wedding coordinator. Uh, we were the MC at the reception. Probably the guy who came up to that couple in the wedding at the Cana of Galilee uh, who said, hey man, you saved the best wine for last. He was probably the Shoshben. 
who's probably the guy who's like, man, I'm in charge of everything. Thanks for making me look good. But the chief duty of this friend of the bridegroom was to stand guard of the bridal chamber and let nobody else in. I don't know if that was like a problem back in that day, but uh, um, it would be dark. All the festivities would be over, and this first night was about to be celebrated between this husband and his wife, and uh, he would stand outside uh, of, the, of the, the room that the bride was waiting for her groom in, and in the dark, he would wait to hear the husband's voice, and he would know, perfect. This is the guy who's going in there, open the door, let him in, and then... His job was done. No wonder John the Baptist says, that's me. I'm here to serve, to, to, to you know, facilitate, to do everything I can for the groom so that the groom can be connected to his bride. I'm here in service to him and him alone. When my job is done, which it, I know it is now. I've heard the voice of the one true Messiah. And he is in the process now, just north of us, up here on this river, of connecting his bride to himself. I rejoice in that. And I have no feelings of self or loss. But isn't it so easy for us to take our eyes off of this? For us to, to lose sight of the bridegroom even as we, you know, serve in life in his name. We can be like a, a best man at a wedding who just photobombs every wedding picture that the bride and groom are in. You know, bride and groom are on either side of him in every picture and he's like, would anybody punch that best man at a wedding? I'd punch that best man, especially if it was my daughter's wedding. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? It's not about you, bro. But that's what we do. As shosh bends, we get all like, <laughs> and make it about us. Here's what we need to do. We need to focus in on our template, who, by the way, is Jesus. When it came time for the uh, feet of he and his friends to be washed, on the night that he was about to be betrayed, you remember the story? Uh, they'd forgotten to hire a slave to do the, the scrubbing, and so they're all fighting about who's going to do it, and what does Jesus do? Just quietly takes off his robes. He's the, the guest of honor, but he stoops down and he walks from smelly foot to smelly foot and washes every one of them. He says, this is, this is what it's about. He had told them earlier in his time with them, hey, the, uh, the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and to die as a ransom for many. That's my gig. Look at my example and be like me. And some of us, man, I'd love to do that, but it's just so hard it's so hard. Here's why it's hard. A lot of times, even though we have his example, we take our eyes off of him and we make it about ourselves. We can try to flesh out our, our humility. And what it, what it takes is, is just the grace of our Savior Jesus, the grace of the humble one coursing through us so that we can serve him as he's called us to. Eleanor and I were at the circus the other night and um, we watched a tightrope walker, and, and we noticed this about this guy. He's up on this, you know, this little skinny cable, and, he, and he's basically doing all this crazy stuff, you know. But his eyes, as he's walking, never look at his feet. He's never, ever looking down. He's always looking where he's going. He's always looking at the end of the line. It reminded me of this story of this uh, preacher. His name's um, uh, I gotta make Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. How's that for a humbler? Yeah, you're the pastor of 10th. 
like there's nine other churches ahead of you, but you're, you take 10th, you got 10th, you're good. He was actually a great preacher. He was one of the first ones ever to you know, preach on uh, radio and he was a famous, famous guy in his time. Uh, he went with all of his friends on, a, on a, uh, a trip that they were on to go speak somewhere. He went all of his friends on a day off to an amusement park and there was this huge barrel type thing that spun and, and the, it was 40 feet long and the goal of it was to basically start at this end and make it to that end. Kind of like a fun house set up, right? And so Barnhouse gets in there and he can't do it. He's just falling all over the place. You know, it's like, you know, churning him like cement. He's like, you know, closing a dryer. He's just flipping all around. And so he just comes back out and he says, this isn't for me. And the guy who runs the ride says, you want to know how to do this? And Barnhouse is like, yeah. He says, well, I'm down at the other end, right? He's like, yeah, I saw you over there. Thanks for shutting this thing down, by the way, while I was flipping around. Um, well, if you look down all the way to the end of this 40-foot tube, there's a mirror. And I stand next to the lever, and, and my image is able to be seen in that mirror. And here's the trick. All you got to do is get in this end, look there. You're going to know what's up and down by looking at my image. And then you just keep looking at my image, and your feet will do the rest. And sure enough, that's what this guy did. He just got in the tube. Tube starts spinning. But as long as his eyes were on the operator of the tube on the image that was in the mirror. He was able to walk. Listen, look at me. I know we're almost done. Humility's hard. It's hard for us to not be whiners, for us to not be demanders, for us not to, you know, think that we deserve more. It's hard. Jesus knew it would be hard. But that's why over and over in Scripture he says, fix, like in Hebrews, fix your eyes on me. See me as the template. See me as your strength. In that letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, uh, he said this, that Jesus emptied himself and became nothing so that we might have life through him. Oh, that we would empty ourselves and become nothing so that we might honor and glorify him. The last thing is this, and I'll leave you to go home. Uh, Seek to be less. This is the most famous verse that John says in this little run. He says, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. I grew up in a a town where I was one of the only Protestant kids. All my friends were Catholic, and they'd come back and tell me about their church and the things that they experienced there. They'd go to confession, and confession started with, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Right? And I was thinking this week, you know, what might be a better um, prayer is, is this one, bless me, Father. Bless me. Just help me be less so that you can be more. Every 18 months in our, our world, there's a solar eclipse. Did you know that? I did not know that. They don't happen very often where we are because they don't show up in the world that we inhabit. But every 18 months somewhere on our planet, uh, the sun, I guess, as it passes behind, I don't know, whatever a solar eclipse is, Eclipses, they're really cool. Don't stare right at them, though, it's bad. Anyway, um, they happen all the time, these, these eclipses. And I was thinking, that's kind of what John's saying. Uh, he's basically saying, guys, we've got to be eclipsed. We, we, we've got to cease to be the show. You know, all of us uh, who have known Jesus and have met Jesus, we received him. And what was meant to happen in our lives is that he was meant to eclipse us. And we were meant to be hidden in him. But here's what happens in most Christian experiences. Thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. Let's go. We're going to do what I want. We're going to go over here. We're going to do all the things that I think matter. 
And when something good happens in those things, guess who gets the shine? You can hang out in the back. That's fine. But this life with you is about me. Make no mistake. And Jesus says, no, it's not. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, James says. And then let him lift you up. Here's what it is. The Christ life, if you've missed it, it's just getting back here. And not even having this much showing. Get here. And every once in a while, a little bit sticks out. And you've just got to be careful not to let that happen. Because that's what God has called us to. You see it over and over again in the story of Scripture. Jonathan giving up his throne to his friend David. Jesus giving up his life so that you and I might live. Now it's our turn. It's our turn to adopt these humble beginnings. Right perspective, God's the giver of all things. If I've got it, I'm supposed to have it because he gave it to me. If I don't, praise be to God. I'm gonna stay in my lane. I'm gonna serve the bridegroom. I'm gonna seek to be less so that he can be more. That's the call of the Christ life. And that's all I wanted to share with you. Can I pray for you? Hey God, I'm staying with you. as we preach this message together, and I pray that you have impressed upon us what John hoped to impress upon his friends. It's not about us, guys. It's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. Let's be about him. And my prayer uh, is what John's prayer apparently was and continued to be less of me and more of Jesus. I pray that for all of us. Uh, I know there's people in here who probably don't know you yet, and, and I pray even now by your spirit you'd be um, just affirming to them that there needs to be less of them so there can be more of you. Lead them to yourself, Father. Uh, lead them to your son and faith in him. For those of us who know you, uh, help us to go to work tomorrow, remembering that we're third, that it's all about you and not us, and use us. Even as we get in cars and drive home now, help us to remember Uh, to love you and to love those around us, I pray, in a humble way, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. That's all I wanted to say. Have a great day.